Hello and welcome to another edition of It's Your Money from Mayor Brownsword, where we banish panic, ignore those nervous voices that whisper in the ear and take a cold, hard, calm look at what's happening with your cash and how to get the best from it. Fittingly, this is a special screening out the noise edition. We're going to look at how to set financial goals without getting distracted by the press or the news cycle and how to steal your nerves and get the best out of adverse circumstances like crashes and corrections and stuff like that. I'm Andrew Harrison, and with me as usual, I've got Andy Mayer. Um, how you doing, Andy? You all right? Very good. First time since we've been doing this, I'm actually sitting next to you doing it in your recording studio, and it's very impressive. Exactly, in the in, in physical space for a change. So it's tax returns week, or it's just gone, actually, with the added bonus of uh, Nadim Zahawi disappearing as well because he got his tax wrong and then tried to cover it up. What would you, Andy, be telling a client who had carelessly forgotten to pay £3.7 million in tax? I, th- I think it's quite an interesting one because he's my local MP. Yeah. And uh, I think if you're carelessly forgetting tax, you've got some real issues. You need to sack your accountancy firm and your financial advisory firm. But I suspect with Nadim, there was probably other issues there. Possibly, possibly. So HMRC defines careless as a failure to take reasonable care in relation to your tax affairs. Fair enough. Nadim we paid a 30% penalty for, for his error. Is that a normal penalty? No, it's discounted. But what I find fascinating is in our industry, we have to have a better than best knowledge of the rules. He was Chancellor of the Exchequer when this investigation was going on. (laughs) So I think it's quite an interesting uh, incident. And I think careless when you're Chancellor of the Exchequer is being understated slightly. And I think he's done very well on a 30% fine, but I'm sure it won't affect him too badly. Well, the mad thing is that he was actually—he actually was in the running to become leader of the Conservative Party and therefore Prime Minister while being investigated by HMRC, which would have been a first. <laughs> I think over the last 15 months, it would just be standard. It would be standard, wouldn't it? Yes. In other much more important news, there's also a new Mayor Brown Sword website up, isn't there? Oh, we're so pleased. It's taken us a while to get it up to where we wanted it to, but it's after to, after Ryan's ep- episode on the podcast today. That'll be available on our website every month, so we're really pleased with it. So we'd urge anyone, if they can have a look at it, give us some feedback. There's articles, videos. We think it's a lot more informative than the average website for financial planners, and we think people can understand it. Great stuff. Well, let's meet our special guest who's going to help us with that big question, how do we keep the noise at bay? Ryan Murphy is a social and behavioural scientist who researches how people make decisions. He's head of behavioural insights at Morningstar, the investment data giant, and a big part of his work is understanding how people think about uncertainty and risk. Hello, Ryan, joining us from Montana. Good to be here. Thank you for having me. What is behavioural science? Give us an introduction to the field. Right. So I have an interdisciplinary background in psychology and economics. And so I study how people make decisions about risk and money and investing. And I think this is useful because if you open a textbook from economics or finance, it'll say that markets are populated by perfectly rational decision agents who take all available information, use that, integrate it, and then optimize henceforth. And for those of us who've had some experience in the real world, that may not be the best description of how real humans make choices and maybe not how markets work. So I think that's where behavioral science leans in then to try and understand how real, make, how real people make decisions, how they make trade-offs, and how they think about risk. And it's not to say that people are dumb or misguided or random, but that there are bounded ways in which they respond to the world. And what we're trying to do is uncover that structure and better understand how people actually make decisions about risk and money. Is it primarily emotion that governs those counter-rational or not rational decisions? Or is it other things? Is it precedent? Is it even kind of social background and, and uh, education? 
So certainly part of it is emotion. And as people become more stressed or have much stronger emotions, it's harder to pay attention to all the different sources of information. And that can lead people to make poorer choices. But many of the biases that we see are not emotionally based. They're just part of how people are wired and how they deal with the world around them. And the fact is we're bounded. We're bounded in how much attention we can bring to bear at any one moment. And attention is a fleeting and valuable resource. Uh, Willpower itself is also one of those resources that slowly wanes away. So I think it's not just emotional things that get in the way of people making good decisions. I think part of it's just how our brains are wired. I read a fantastic sort of factoid in a a piece about social media the other day, which said that the human brain evolved to, you know, kind of know maybe 20 people and understand about 10 plants and three or four animals. And then 20,000 years later, we're trying to handle the modern world, thousands of people, multiple inputs, mm-hmm. countless uh, variables, things that the, the human brain was never really, never really built itself to deal with. Does that ring true or is that a bit glib? I think there's something to that. I think it's worth remembering that our brains are the product of a long evolutionary process that looks radically different than the modern world we have around us. I think that our brains are very good pattern recognition machines, but it's worth knowing that they're so good at recognizing patterns, they sometimes see patterns that aren't there. And that has evolutionary advantages, right? But from the standpoint of an investor dealing with price volatility or changes in returns, that could lead to some sort of bad behaviors as well. So you mentioned risk and uh, you know kind of pressure and stress. In many ways, the investment business, particularly for managers, but also for those of us, you know, just sitting there worrying about our retirement portfolio, is all risk and it's all stress. Are we basically going into an environment here that's almost built to make people make bad decisions? It's an environment that can bring out some of the worst decision qualities. Right. So some of the biases, uh, for example, the recency bias, what just happened, that may not be the best source of information for making a good decision. Loss aversion, people's hypersensitivity to downside. And this also may be something that that is not going to bring out the the quality decisions that they need in that moment. So I think that investing has this, this environment that's fast paced and the stakes are very high. And it is a place that these biases can start to play out in ways that undermine the quality of decision making. Let's bring it back to the average investor like me then. I mean, often the governing emotions are kind of a mixture of bewilderment, a lot of information to get your head around, tinged with, you know, FOMO, fear of missing out. Is something happening that I ought to be part of? Do you think that as for kind of retail investors and the kind of people who will be talking to to Andy, how can they handle those sort of impulses? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's worth just stepping back a little bit and understanding that although investing is an unnatural thing, that there's a couple things that people have to do in order to be successful at it, right? So it's unnatural in the sense that it requires people to delay consumption. They have to take resources they have today and choose not to use those and put those away somewhere else for some sort of distant future. And the second thing is it requires people to embrace uncertainty. And that's another thing that's unnatural. Our brains don't like uncertainty. And so this is an uncomfortable thing. And so being an investor requires people to do these two unnatural acts, right? So why would a person ever do this to themselves? Well, the answer is goals. They're trying to reach some sort of overarching, larger financial goal, and investing is the way in which they'll get there. 
And I think if you take that mindset from the lens of what an investor's goals are and put them back to the longer term, the larger why they're doing this, that can help reorient them and make better long-term decisions. So for example, what the market just did in the last week or the bewilderment of trying to understand all these different sources of information in real time, that may not be most relevant to a retail investor as to what they need to do. The biggest driver of retail investing success is having a consistent and high enough savings rate over time and maintaining proper asset exposure over the long duration of market cycles to bring people to their long-term financial goals. From your study of this, do you have kind of pointers in ways that people can kind of almost look at their own behavior and, and modify it? I think that, let me answer that in, in two ways. I think that um, there's studies that have been looked at for, are there ways in which we can teach people not to fall prey to some of these biases, debiasing efforts or financial literacy training? And the research there is pretty negative in the sense that these mm. sorts of programs or interventions don't seem to work very well at teaching people about the kinds of mistakes they make or helping them avoid them. It seems that these are more persistent kinds of problems. And so the response, I think, is not to be pessimistic about that, but is to recognize, okay, so if that's not going to work as a path, what will? And part of what we see as being very promising is something called choice architecture, is how do you design choice environments to help people who are sometimes irrational make more rational choices? And to that end, you're asking, okay, are there certain warning signs, right? So imagine a person's in, in an environment, are they focused on very short-term information? What there's a price movement of this particular equity on this day, right? And I think that would be a warning sign because long-term investing success is not about what a particular equity did yesterday. It requires a much longer-term viewpoint and vantage. And so I think that if people can recast how they're thinking about investing from the short term to the long term, that helps them avoid the kinds of pitfalls that we see people fall prey to. Secondly, would be what kind of benchmarks are they using for comparison? So if it's, I just want to break even, that may not be the best goal. That sounds a lot like the sort of gambler's fallacy or, or the kind of mad reasoning you see at the gambling table, right? Not a good way to think about investing. So I think by recasting again, what benchmark are people using as they compare and evaluate their investing success? If it can be, are they on track for their long-term goals? It can help them think more fruitfully about what they're trying to accomplish and avoid the pitfalls that they might fall prey to otherwise. I'm glad you mentioned gambling because I wanted to ask you, are other human pursuits, you know, and gambling is one that's most kind of akin to investing, I suppose, in that it's about money and, and speculation. Are there other areas of human endeavor that you found useful in painting a picture of how people behave in the investing environment? I mean, we've all, we've all known or seen friends who may have pro uh, gambling problems, and you can see things that you've just mentioned, like recency bias. Mm -hmm. This just happened, therefore it will happen again applied in their world and in their actions. And yet we also know from gamblers that like, well, you know, the house seldom loses. Right. So all those, those biases seldom play out well. Right. Yeah. Gambling is, is a fascinating area of study. So I used to teach at university and a lot of the examples we use are toy problems that are very much that have their roots in gambling. A lot of the development of the mathematics of probability and statistics from 250 years ago comes out of people thinking about how to gamble well, right? And so I think, mm. you know, we run the risk when we teach some of this stuff of thinking about risky decision making as, as looking like economists who are actually degenerate gamblers. We're not. But, <laughs> but what these toy problems allow us to do is to, like a crucible, burn away the irrelevant features of what this is about and focus really on what the core issue here. And the core issue is risk, right? You're embracing risk. 
risk and there's some sort of trade-offs. Do you want this sure thing that's smaller or do you want a risk where there's an upside and a downside? And the upside uh, on average is higher, right? So you have this idea of expected value and the edge and the odds and all these other sorts of things, which is a little bit the language of gambling, but it's, a, I think, a very different mindset. Um, these are useful tools, right, to, to help people think about what they're doing and how they're approaching it. But it's also worth remembering that as people think about gambling, they they don't get it. They're, they're counterintuitive ways in which probabilities work, and the mind simply doesn't operate. I mean, for example, if you watch someone... Uh, you'll see people at a casino and they'll be watching the roulette wheel and it might have come up red five times in a row, right? And people around the table have feelings as if now, you know, that streak has got to come to an end. And that makes people bet more money. Casinos even help people out by putting up these boards that show the history of what that roulette wheel has done. And that induces people to make more (laughs) bets. Now, it's as if the ball and the roulette wheel have a memory or are trying to even themselves in the grand karmic scheme of things. You know, this I doubt. But notice how this environment is providing people feedback, which is noise. And then people mm. are starting to react to that. So this is, a, this is an environment that is designed to, to play into people's biases. And so I think when we take that example and then recast it in investing, you know, are you looking at short-term returns? Are you looking at noise-generating processes? Those are probably not going to be good fuel for making better choices. We're living in a very noisy environment right now. We're living in very volatile times. We've got war, pandemics, recession. We also have kind of mechanisms in the in the financial world that can can accentuate that noise. We have auto, automated trading systems that can create sudden eddies in the market. This can be very anxiety-making. Mm-hmm. Do you have other strategies to help you cope with that feeling of anxiety or panic? You know, when you're trying to make a cold reason-based decision and you're surrounded by all this what looks like chaos right so i think there's a a kind of discipline that sounds almost stoic which is what do people have control over have them focus on that and what they don't have control over have them try and turn that down now that becomes increasingly difficult given all the cool digital tools we have right i have an apple watch Mm -hmm. now it, it does have a setting that would allow it to ding every time some one of my equity holdings changed position right? That would not be a useful source of information <laughs> for me as I make, as I make decisions. Uh, the phone, my iPhone can do the same thing. Lots of these digital tools we have are very quick and responsive and can, and, you know, interrupt our otherwise daily lives with these updated pieces of information. I turn all that off. None of that is going to help me make better decisions about investing. None of that is going to help me think better about my long-term financial goals or help me stay on track to achieve those ends. So yeah, I might be curious about, you know, what did the market do today, but is it really going to change what I'm going to do? No, I already know what I'm going to do. And I have a long-term plan I'm executing on. So that's a different mindset. And I think turning down some of those sources of noise, purposefully choosing to turn off those sources of noise can help people reorient how their mindset is. And that I think can lead people to, to choose better. Well, we're never going to not be emotional creatures, are we? We're all, there's always going to be a component of that to, to ourselves. Is there value in maybe giving yourself perhaps a, a, a bit of an irrational cheer up, maybe by putting in a couple of hundred pounds at the bottom of the market, which might represent only a tiny percentage of, of what you invest, and sort of maybe focusing on that as the bit that might um, reward your superstitions, as it were? Mm-hmm. Right. I think that it's worth pointing out that rational decision making doesn't imply emotionless or cold 
right? Mm. So I think the the main drivers of why we invest, why people are doing this, actually have deep emotional reasons. They're trying to achieve a safe and secure retirement for themselves and their family. They're trying to leave a legacy. They're trying to build a safe household, education for children. I mean, these other sorts of things. And these have deep emotional roots about what it means to be a virtuous person. And money is part of that. Investing is, can be a key part of that. So I, I don't think that rational decision-making is cold and emotionless. I think it's when people get overtaken by that, by the shorter-term feelings at the, in the moment, and that starts to erode long-term good thinking. Andy, do you find uh, yourself possibly with clients or possibly with sort of institutional colleagues that you, you're kind of you're, you're feeling that maybe it's not entirely rational what's being said to you? Yeah, and that's one of the reasons we wanted Ryan on it because sometimes people, when the market is falling, rather than looking at it as a great buying opportunity, panic and think, oh, I should be taking my money out at the worst time. Mm. And every time I listened to Ryan speak or read any of the articles, I felt there was so much benefit by having him on today because people do worry when things are going short-term down, like the COVID situation or when we had the issue last year with the budget – and people forget their long-term goals, which is the long-term goal, as Ryan said, for most people is to have a planned, secure and safe retirement, something they're going to enjoy and not worry about the money. Mm. I mean, you've been, you're, as a client, I know you say this uh, often, you know, don't be panicked, don't be taking short-term decisions. <laughs> but what about, you know, that those kind of impulses to sort of make an impulse purchase of some kind of, some item of goods that might make you feel good for five minutes? I mean, how do you kind of, Tear your mind away from that and get back to your goals. I'm not really a shopper. My, mm. I, it's not my thing. Buying sports tickets, love it. So I think every one of us. It, but it's what we've just gone. We need to know what our weaknesses are. So I know mine is trying to buy live sports tickets. <laughs> and I think if you know what your weakness is, it can help. And I don't think there's anything wrong with those impulsive purchases, as long as it doesn't detract away from your commitments of planning a secure retirement making sure your mortgage is paid, having rainy day money. But it's when people start chasing. I've in, Over the years, I've seen people who've started online poker mm. and suddenly a £500 maximum stake that they have as a debt is £25,000. They've got to pay it off. And so when Ryan's talking about gambling, I've seen the other side of it when yeah. people ring you up and say, I've got a, an issue. This puts cold terror in me. And me, yeah. But as you know, I'm a very, very tight, mean person, so this would make me very frightened, wouldn't well, I'm it? hoping you're buying the drinks after this, so you're not that tight. Yeah, only halves. London prices. We're in London now. Ryan, I wanted to ask you, I mean, you t we talk about keeping yourself to your goals and being able to sort of tune out, A, the noise, and B, the kind of the voice of irrationality, maybe. What can you say to people who are, say, you know, they're maybe 20 or 40 years away from a retirement date? which just seems to get further away rather than closer with every economic crisis. And, you know, every time they turn on the news, it says, actually, you've got to be retiring two years later, three years later than you thought you were. How can you keep your mind on your goals when, when it's not just irrational voices, but also hard news is telling you they're going to be more difficult to attain? So I think that what people are having to do is mediate this decision between their short-term selves and their long-term selves. And it's a relationship if here I am now and there's this person, you know, this is a person I haven't met yet. I'll become more acquainted with them as time ticks away 20, 30 years from now. But I think helping people understand the consequences of their choices today and what that'll mean in terms of their lives into the future. I think giving people concrete examples, maybe people they know who've been very successful in saving and investing and see how that's 
translated for them into terms of their lifestyle and what they're able to accomplish versus others who don't. And I think that it's, it's easy to fall prey to this emphasis of short term now, but over the long run, there is compounding, there's reinvestment of dividends, there's the ability to create substantial wealth, which buys flexibility, freedom, time. And for people who are thinking about what kind of lives they want to construct for themselves, thinking into that future is just a necessary step. It's very difficult to keep your mind on this when like one recent British prime minister and one recent US president have had an attitude to money that would terrify me if it was a member of my family, yeah. isn't it, don't you think? Yeah, there is there is a lot of anxiety. But I think for me, one of my favorite metaphors when thinking about the anxiety of like reading the newspaper or these other sorts of events, it's not to downplay it. I mean, people are going to feel anxious and that's a, a natural thing. And some of the political realm you <laughs> identify there, I think can exacerbate that for people. But for me, one of the best metaphors for thinking about this is when I fly, right? So if there's going to be mm -hmm. turbulence, um, it's not, you know, if you fly enough, of course, you're going to run into turbulence. It's not if there's turbulence, it's just a matter of when. And when you talk to investors, if any investor ever says to you, if there's a recession in the next 30 years, you need to stop them and say, it's not if, right? If you're in this for the long haul, it's a matter of when and how many. But when turbulence kicks up on an airplane, the passengers, the most nervous passengers, are the ones who grab the, the knuckle, white knuckles, they grab the seat, and they look at each other, right? And they make <laughs> eye contact, me. right? That uncomfortable <laughs> eye contact, like, are you nervous? I'm nervous, right? I'm nervous. So mm. th that's, that's the kind of feedback loop that gets created in that environment. And that's not a particularly good source of information. What, you would, what would be wiser to do, what I would encourage people to do is find the oldest flight attendant on the airplane. This is the person who's logged the most miles and look at he or she. And invariably, when I look at that person, she doesn't even put her cell phone down. I mean, she's entirely non-pulsed by whatever turbulence the airplane is having. So I think that that's just a different advantage point and view and where mm. people look for information. So if you want to look at other people who are nervous, you will find them to talk about financial the financial situation. And there's media makes money from this. But if you really want a little bit more of a prerogative, a little bit more wisdom, you want people who have this longer term view, more experience, and can bring that to bear. And so when I think people start to feel this, yeah, of course, you're going to feel anxiety. That's a natural thing. But what are you going to do with it? Understand the context of where that anxiety comes from and how that really fits into a 30-year investment plan. And I think that helps people calibrate a little bit more so. Speaking of the contrast between uh, older and experienced people and younger people, Andy's very hot on uh, financial education for the younger person. What about today's young people with, uh, you know, spending wildly on avocado toast and delivery machuccinos and all the stuff that we hear about in the paper? The idea that supposedly young people are, are profligate and incapable of sticking to a long term goal. What can listeners say to their kids or, you know, their nieces or nephews or whatever to get them to take the, the, the right approach to financial security from a decision-making point of view. Right. Well, I think there's certain tools that we can bring to bear that help people make better choices. So for example, automatic savings rates. So for example, anytime a person gets a paycheck, then automatically a certain percentage of that is taken out before it goes into an account that can be spent is put into an investment account. These kinds of automated tools can help people in maybe a cold, more rational moment, make a decision about how they want to structure their future spending and do so in a way that it's actually easy to enforce because later down the road, when they're making the consumption decision, that money's already been invested. I think that, you know, there is utility in spending money on these sorts of things and people, if they want a particular small coffee here and there, or, you know, an avocado toast, I don't think it's going to be the end of their financial security. But I think the larger problems are about how do you make sure people have a systematic savings rate and that savings is put into long-term investment portfolios that can generate the returns they need to get where they want to go. 
Um, your research is primarily in the US. Do you think Americans are different from the British in uh, in your decision-making frameworks and our decision-making frameworks? Because I mean, my wife's American, my in-laws, obviously, they're all, all American. And I kind of see they take an approach to investment that is much more serious and engaged than here, where maybe we just think, you know, <laughs> what can you do sometimes in Britain? I think part of our problem here is that we have the state pension and a welfare state. And I think a lot of people naively believe that that's enough. But Ryan, do you think, in your experience, do, uh, do Americans make decisions differently from British people? I would say many of the mechanisms we're talking about and the proclivities are much more about human that I would say are independent mm -hmm. of a particular culture or a particular situation. Not to say that there aren't differences. There certainly are. I mean, many of the, the kinds of details of how investments are managed and put forth are very much to the contextualization of whether it be in the UK, whether it be in mainland Europe or the United States. There are substantial differences, no doubt. But when you think about how people think about the trade-offs between now and later, the trade-offs between certainty and risk, the trade-offs between all, all these other sorts of sequential decisions we're highlighting here. There's some very human nature drivers here, factors that are that are making this go. And so it's not a, a function of one particular culture versus another. Um, Andy did say before we recorded the podcast, we should ask you, hmm. what stops people making wills? Is that a rational thing? Are we fundamentally thinking at the back of our minds, in our most irrational part of our brain, I'm not actually going to die? Right. Well, I mean, that, that is an uncomfortable conversation, and uh, humans are able to reflect on it and realize that life is finite. We have a certain amount of time, and that's that. So that is uncomfortable. That makes people so uncomfortable sometimes that they just stop and then try and do something else to distract them. And I think that it's worth reminding people that the distraction won't change the end. And there, this is inevitable. Mm. But what do you want to do about it? What can you do about it today that actually can make things better for those around you, especially loved ones who in you know, a person's eventual demise will be dealing with lots of other things? Do you want them to deal with more uncertainty or more paperwork and these kinds of things? Or maybe that's a gift you could create for them now that makes this transition easier. Just in summary, then, we, we, we said at the top it was about the tuning out of the noise. What are the key things to concentrate on then, just to, for the listeners to take away? Keep bear this in mind. I'd say there's two things to focus on. The first is going to be goals and asking the person, asking yourself, what are you trying to accomplish? What are your overarching long-term financial goals? Why are you doing this? And that's where I think that is the foundation of what rational behavior is about, because you need the decision agent to understand what they're trying to accomplish and then do today that maximizes the chances of them getting that. And that's the principle at play there. And if people forget their long-term goals and start to become very short-term, then that leads to the kind of poor behaviors we see. And that highlights my second point, which is whether or not people have long-term or short-term thinking. Most of these goals we're talking about are very long-term, and it's worth keeping that mindset. If people are responding to price movements of the last day, if they are trading uh, in a very you know, kind of ad hoc way, emotional way, maybe trading something on their phone, almost like a gamification of it, that's probably not going to lead to good investing behavior. I mean, let's be clear, investing shouldn't be fun. It shouldn't be all that interesting. This is, <laughs> right, quoting Warren Buffett, it should be kind of boring. You save enough, you pick good asset class, you pick a good investment portfolio, you reinvest dividends, and you leave it alone. You don't fiddle with it. You don't try and time the market. The evidence is very clear that the more people fiddle with their portfolios and try and time the market, the worse off they are. They burn a lot of capital just in 
trading. And they also miss out on a lot of returns because our brains are not very well wired for, you know, timing markets of ups and downs like this. And it's the best advice there is don't try. I like uh, advice that uh, includes be boring because I have a natural skill at that. So I'm going to stick with that. Ryan, thank you so much. That was really interesting. I'll never, I'll never think about my own brain in the same way again. Excellent. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. That was a great listen. Andy, um, are you going to be revising the way you think from now on? I listen to a lot of Ryan's material, so it's really helpful to me. And I try and listen to behavioral scientists like Ryan a mm. lot because I think what we wanted to get across today is that if people have a long-term goal, stick to it. Mm. And you don't have to just keep changing it because you hear something on the news. Yeah. And I think it's really important today that people listen to that and focus on their long-term goal. And I have a long-term goal. Mm. You're suppressing irrational thinking, and yet you still follow Celtic. <laughs> and I still follow Liverpool. So, <laughs> so the irrationality of both of us there is pretty to the fore. I've got a long-term goal, Andy. Jürgen Klopp has long-term goals. I'm sticking with it. So is that big Ange, and we're hoping the long-term goal will be the Premier League this year. There we go. Well, thank you both for joining us on this edition of the podcast. We'll be back again with another edition in a month's time. Don't forget to follow It's Your Money on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And the next edition will come to your phone seamlessly. And um, the website, Andy? Yeah, this podcast will be on the website hopefully in a week's time. It'll be emailed to everyone Friday afternoon. But I would urge people to listen to this podcast over and over again because I think Ryan's given them some great insights for their long-term development to get where they want to be. Fantastic. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.